Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands covers the PFAS chemical that has been used to make products resistant to heat, water, grease, and stains. And now for your environmental reports. Two Indiana groups have joined a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency for failing to protect people and the environment from toxic coal ash in landfills that are no longer being used. The groups say these landfills shouldn't have been exempt from stricter coal ash rules in 2015. Coal ash contains toxic heavy metals like mercury, cadmium, and arsenic, which can get into the groundwater and pollute local drinking water sources. Lisa Evans is an attorney with Earth Justice. The group is representing the Hoosier Environmental Council the LaPorte County branch of the Indiana NAACP and others in the suit. She said even though the ash is dry when it's placed into these inactive coal ash landfills, it can get soaked when it rains or the water table rises, polluting the groundwater just like regular coal ash ponds. Quote, those landfills didn't have to be monitored. There were no reporting requirements. They were subjected to no cleanup standards, no closure standards, and those, those hundreds of units are units that are causing groundwater contamination as we speak, end quote, Evans said. For example, these landfills don't have to have things like caps or liners to prevent water from getting in, something now required for active coal ash ponds. The exemption applies to all inactive coal ash landfills that stopped receiving waste before the rule was put into place in 2015. Earth Justice said that's half a billion tons of coal ash, enough to fill train cars that could stretch across the earth two times. Indiana has 21 inactive coal ash landfills. About half of them are at Duke Energy's former R. Gallagher coal plant near Albany. Quote, I think what differentiates us from some of those other states is that we have not had an environmental disaster yet, emphasis on yet, to spur us into a huge wake-up call, end quote, said Susan Thomas of the group Just Transition Northwest Indiana. Just Transition Northwest Indiana wants to see coal ash used as fill on the site of the Michigan City coal plant cleaned up. Thomas said if such a disaster were to happen here, it would directly affect the largely lower-income black and brown community nearby, a huge environmental injustice. The lawsuit alleges that the EPA was supposed to review its exemption for inactive coal ash landfills four years ago, but it never did. Evans said a court also ruled that the EPA has to regulate legacy coal ash ponds, coal ash mixed with water in a pond that is no longer in use. 
She said the agency hasn't done that yet either, but she expects the EPA will propose a rule for legacy ponds in the next few months. The herbicide atrazine is making frogs croak, and not in a good way, because it's so widely used across the United States for weed control on crops, concentrations of atrazine in many rivers, ponds, and streams are so high they kill amphibians. There is concern for detrimental effects on children from simply drinking water contaminated with atrazine. And in adults, exposure to atrazine correlates with elevated cancer risk, irregular menstrual cycles, and low sperm counts. Atrazine use is a complex issue with powerful arguments for using it or not using it. Atrazine use is illegal in 44 countries across the world. Atrazine is banned in Europe, but it is the second most used herbicide in U.S. agriculture, with more than 60 million pounds sprayed on crops each year, behind only Monsanto's glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed guidelines to reduce atrazine use in watersheds. When EPA announced its June 30th proposed rule on atrazine, farmers took immediate notice. Growers of corn, grain sorghum, sugarcane, fruits, vegetables, and other crops rely on atrazine. If adopted, the proposal would place restrictions on most farmers. The EPA wants to prohibit application when soils are saturated or above field capacity, such as the soil's ability to, to retain water. They also would prohibit application during rain or when a storm event likely to produce runoff from the treated area is forecasted to occur within 48 hours following application. Other proposals include prohibiting aerial applications of all formulations and restricting annual application rates to two pounds of active ingredient or less per acre per year or less for applications to sorghum, field corn, and sweet corn. The herbicide known as atrazine report continues. In a published decision that concluded the registration review of atrazine in 2020, EPA set the aquatic level of concern at 15 parts per billion, PPB. If the proposed rule is adopted, over 72% of U.S. corn acres would be out of compliance based on a model used to predict which areas would exceed the new strict atrazine limits. Republican Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas has filed a bill in the Senate that seeks to limit the agency's ability to regulate pesticide use. The so-called EPA Transparency for Agriculture Products Act of 2022, it says its intention is to prevent the EPA from overregulating essential pesticides that the ag industry heavily depends upon. In February, conservative senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Mike Braun of Indiana, and Joni Ernst of Iowa sent a letter to the EPA Administrator Regan that called on him to redirect the EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs away from what they say is their propensity for overly precautious blanket bans, and severe restrictions. They specifically advocated for more lax regulation of triazine herbicides such as atrazine. Indiana growers have shown increased interest in utilizing cover crops in corn and soybean production systems over the last decade. Concurrently, there has also been increased utilization of soil residual herbicides to help manage herbicide-resistant weeds. 
Atrazine at greater than one pound per acre will be problematic for legumes and mustards unless lots of rainfall occurs after application. Using less than 0.75 pounds per acre may allow for good establishment of most legume cover crops, mustards, and annual ryegrass. ABC News reports the Environmental Protection Agency temporarily lifted a federal rule for fuel sales in four states in response to a fire last week at an Indiana oil refinery that could affect prices and supply. The emergency waiver was granted Saturday for Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said. In a letter to state officials, Regan said the agency determined the waiver is necessary to minimize or prevent disruption of an adequate supply of gasoline to consumers. The waiver lifts a Clean Air Act requirement that lower volatility gasoline be sold in the states during summer months to limit ozone pollution. It is in effect until September the 15th, the EPA said. BP said its refinery in Whiting, Indiana experienced an electrical fire Wednesday. No one was hurt and the fire was put out, but it caused a loss of utilities in other parts of the refinery, forcing at least a partial shutdown. The refinery is located along Lake Michigan's shoreline, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers southeast of Chicago, according to the company. The company said Sunday it is working toward a phased restart of the refinery, but no date was given. Governors in all four states requested the EPA waivers, according to the EPA's letter. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's office said the, the refinery provides about 20% to 25% of the gasoline, jet fuel, and diesel used by Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Illinois. BP spokeswoman Christina Audisho said the company was working with local and state agencies and was still assessing when affected units can restart. For years, the ambiguous yet contented face of Mr. Trashwheel has been an icon of Baltimore's Inner Harbor. The googly-eyed trash collector has been gobbling up millions of pounds of the city's riverborne garbage for years and years and led to the creation of several waterwheel allies like Captain Trashwheel and Professor Trashwheel. The idea for some sort of garbage collector came from local inventor John Kellett, who would walk across a footbridge spanning the Jones Falls stream that feeds the Baltimore Harbor and be disturbed on seeing the unabated flow of garbage floating towards it. Kellett looked around to see if there were any potential solutions to the problem, but found none. He would end up not only giving the harbor a more sparkling, trash-free appearance, but one of the city's biggest celebrities and social media icons, though he admitted it wasn't his idea to put googly eyes on the barge. Mr. Trash Wheel rotates based on power drawn from the river's current. If not enough electricity can be generated from the river alone, the wheel uses solar energy instead. Kellett, who runs Clearwater Mills, also makes specially designed cages to fit into storm drain outfalls, which is the source of most of the garbage pollution into the harbor. His idea has been so successful that several other organizations are building their own Mr. Trash Wheel. Coming soon to the Gwyns Fall River in Maryland is Gwenda, the Good Wheel of the West, while Oakland, California is building one called Trasherella. Behind the Mr. Trash Wheel brand is one of the most important concepts of modern pollution theory, 
These rivers deposit the bulk of the garbage existing in the oceans. A nonprofit, the Ocean Cleanup, which operates sophisticated green energy river trash interceptors, explains on its website that 1,000 of the world's rivers source 80% of all the trash found in the ocean. Where have all the butterflies gone? Have you noticed that there are fewer butterflies this year? The impact from climate change is having a huge impact on butterflies. Habitat loss and pesticides have long posed a threat to butterflies, but climate change is a new challenge. Some butterflies will not be able to adapt. Global temperatures are climbing and butterflies are struggling as to when to lay their eggs. If they lay them too soon, the caterpillars may emerge too early or too late for the plants they depend on for food. They also need water, like all living things. Many of the droughts happening out west are making it harder for butterflies to find the water they need. Plus, the drought is drying out flowering plants the butterflies need for nectaring. There are also the wildfires. Over one million acres in the North Coast Range has destroyed the habitats the butterflies need for survival. They cannot wait for the vegetation to come back. Many butterflies are adapted to cold winters, but fewer frost and warmer winter temperatures make the eggs, caterpillars, and pupae more susceptible to disease. Mild weather also raises metabolism, which results in butterflies running out of energy before they complete development. So much of their habitat has been reduced, they now have nowhere to go when storms threaten. Wind and rain can kill unsheltered butterflies. So in order to save our butterflies, we need to stabilize the climate now before it's too late. From the publication Solutions, a big win has taken place on oil and gas emissions. Every year, oil and gas operators in New Mexico emit more than 1.1 million metric tons of climate warming methane, plus 300,000 tons of smog-forming volatile organic compounds. All that is about to change. New rules passed by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's administration will slash oil and gas pollution, requiring frequent inspections of wells and compressor stations, especially those near homes and schools. The Environmental Defense Fund is part of a broad and diverse group of stakeholders that helped get the tough new rules passed, including public health, environmental justice, tribal and conservation groups, as well as Occidental Petroleum, one of the state's leading oil producers. In a state that has become the nation's second largest oil producer, these rules will improve the health of New Mexicans, as well as reduce methane emissions and, quote, set a powerful example for the Environmental Protection Agency to build on as it advances nationwide methane protections, end quote says John Goldstein, the Environmental Defense Fund's Senior Director for Regulatory and Legislative Affairs. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands covers the PFAS chemical that has been used to make products resistant to heat, water, grease, and stains. PFAS chemicals are a group of extremely useful synthetic chemicals used since the 1940s to create products that are waterproof, fireproof, greaseproof, and even stainproof. Here's how DuPont chemist Tom Del Pesco described the usefulness of one such product, Teflon coating, in a 1994 ad. Chemistry is the, is the practice of magic. 
people think of Teflon, they think of frying pans. Teflon is not one thing. Putting Teflon on a surface will stop bugs from crawling up trees. They'll fall right off the tree. Teflon is a chain loop. This is something I've come up with for bicycles. You know, only DuPont makes Teflon. And you can use it in satellites, on fabrics, or leather. When's the last time you heard about a, a leather raincoat? <laughs> you can let your imagination run wild. It's not often that you get to make something new in this world. Teflon and other products like water-repellent Gore-Tex and stain-proof Scotchgard are household names for people of a certain vintage. And they're made using PFAS chemicals. Until about eight years ago, Teflon and Gore-Tex were made with a PFAS chemical called perfluorooctanoic acid, or PFOA. Scotchgard was made with a different but similar PFAS chemical called perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, or PFOS. The products were available to buy and use for decades despite the federal government and the companies that made the products knowing that they could potentially negatively affect human health and the environment. The Biden administration is moving forward with multiple plans to establish regulations limiting toxic contamination from PFOA and PFOS, but the proposed rules could leave many understudied and potentially toxic PFAS chemicals at large in Hoosier air and waterways. Scientists at Indiana's research universities are working to fill in data gaps on PFAS chemicals, undertaking multidisciplinary studies to better understand how PFAS chemicals spread and affect Hoosier health. PFAS chemicals have been linked to a series of health effects like an increased risk of developing kidney or testicular cancer, damage to the liver and immune system, increased cholesterol levels, increased risk of high blood pressure or preeclampsia in pregnant women, and decreased vaccine response in children. This is Jennifer Freeman, professor of toxicology at Purdue University's School of Health Sciences. They're detecting them, you know, everywhere in the environment. Almost every human has them in their blood and they're everywhere around the globe that you can detect them. PFAS are known as forever chemicals due to their extreme persistence, their ability to remain in the environment without breaking down for more than a thousand years. That persistence has allowed them to travel throughout every corner of the globe. The chemicals have been found in many places in the environment, from Indiana tap water to Antarctic rainfall. The chemicals have been detected in the blood of most Americans at levels many times higher than those found in many other countries. The Biden administration is moving forward with multiple proposals to regulate PFOA and PFOS through U.S. Environmental Protection Agency rules. The EPA is pursuing a limit on the amount of PFOA and PFOS chemicals that can be found in treated drinking water and expects to develop a proposed national drinking water regulation for the two chemicals by the end of 2022. The agency has proposed designating those two PFAS chemicals as hazardous substances under the nation's Superfund law. That designation would require facilities to report PFOA and PFOS releases, including those that have happened historically, and would make those facilities responsible for their cleanup. The proposals are part of the agency's PFAS Strategic Roadmap, a three-year plan to pursue other actions to assess the extent of PFAS contamination in the U.S. But the EPA's planned enforceable regulations are focused almost solely on PFOA and PFOS due to their link to a wide array of health risks found during decades of studies. The 3M company created PFOA and PFOS in the 1950s. The company undertook various private studies on the toxicity of the chemicals that it kept to itself until it turned some over to the EPA in the year 2000. Others were released due to lawsuits filed against the company. 
The health effects of PFOA on humans were studied extensively as a result of the settlement of a class action lawsuit launched by 80,000 private citizens against DuPont and its offshoot company Kimors for its use of PFOA in the production of Teflon coatings. The resulting C8 health project studied over 69,000 people over a 13-month period between 2005 and 2006, collecting demographic data, medical diagnoses, laboratory testing, and PFAS concentration levels. The U.S. Department of Defense has studied PFOA and PFOS since the early 1970s. The chemicals were an ingredient in early versions of the military's firefighting foam known as aqueous film-forming foam. Studies from various military branches in the 1970s found PFOA, PFOS, and other PFAS chemicals were toxic to the environment and animal life. Subsequent research in the 1980s found PFAS chemicals in the firefighting foam were toxic to mice and marine organisms. About 700 current and former military installations around the country, including more than a dozen in Indiana, are being investigated for the release of aqueous film-forming foam and PFAS contamination. The combination of public and private research gave scientists a greater understanding of the effects of PFOA and PFOS, but American companies have mostly moved on from those chemicals and adopted replacement PFAS, for which there is much less toxicity data. The EPA recently expanded its knowledge of PFAS toxicity by finalizing toxicity assessments for two additional successor PFAS chemicals, Gen X and PFBS. Gen X chemicals are what the EPA calls hexafluoropropylene oxide dimer acid and hexafluoropropylene oxide dimer acid ammonium salt, two chemicals created by DuPont to replace PFOA and Teflon in other products. Gen X Chemicals and some other lawsuit magnet chemicals are now owned by DuPont spin-off Chemors Company. The company argues Gen X Chemicals are safe for its intended use, the manufacturing of high-performance fluoropolymers, a family of plastic resins used to make products resistant to high heat and corrosive elements. On the company's Gen X page, the company said there is over a decade of scientific data that confirms its safety profile, and that multiple studies have demonstrated that the chemicals do not bioaccumulate. Despite the company's public position, DuPont data submitted to the EPA and later obtained by The Intercept points to potential toxicity to humans. The data indicated the chemicals damaged the liver and kidney, caused developmental effects, suppressed the immune system, and led to the development of cancerous liver and pancreas tumors in lab animals. The EPA's assessment, which was limited to oral exposure to Gen X chemicals due to a lack of research, included DuPont's findings. PFBS was created in the late 1990s by 3M to replace PFOS. The company began creating surfactants, the compounds that change the way water molecules react to other molecular surfaces, based on PFBS in 2002 and released accompanying data in a technical bulletin that led the company to declare PFBS a sustainable alternative to PFOS-based products. PFBS is mainly used in firefighting foams and during chrome electroplating as a mist suppressant. The chemical is also found in some food packaging products. 3M admitted the persistence of PFBS but downplayed its significance, saying that persistence in and of itself is not a concern if a material is practically non-toxic. The EPA's 2021 PFBS assessment linked the chemical to health problems affecting the thyroid, reproductive organs, fetal development, and kidney function in animals. Due to a lack of research into the chemical, only asthma and cholesterol studies have found statistically positive associations with PFBS exposure in humans, despite evidence pointing to a likelihood of more adverse health links. 
The assessment warned that more research was necessary to ascertain whether PFBS is harmful to humans because too few studies have been done on the chemical's effects. The assessment found that no studies have been done to evaluate the association between PFBS and potential cancer outcomes. The EPA updated existing non-enforceable guidelines called Drinking Water Lifetime Health Advisories for PFOA and PFOS this summer and established advisories for PFBS and Gen X due to, quote, newly available science. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn how to identify an owl by its call at the Owl Calls program at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Friday, September 2nd from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Meet at the Activity Center in the Amphitheater. You will look at images of owls and then listen to its call. You will also get to see real owl wings and feet. Enjoy a program on how to rekindle the ancient fire on Saturday, September the 3rd from 12.30 to 4 p.m. at the Lower Cascades Park in the Sycamore Shelter. Learn to find, process, and use the parts of a bow drill. You will also learn knife safety, tree identification, history, and techniques. You will get to take your bow drill home and make your own fires. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Leaf print coloring will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, September 10th from 11.30 a.m. to noon at the Lakeview Activity Center. You will join the naturalist to make your own leaf print while learning about how the trees prepare for the fall. Enter the world of plants and learn more than just identification at the Wild Edible, Medicinal, Poisonous, and Useful Plants program on Saturday, September the 10th from 1 to 3 p.m. at the RCA Community Park. Discuss local plants and how they may be used for food, medicine, or tools. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Take the Harvest Moon Hike at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Saturday, September 10th from 8 to 10 p.m. The harvest moon is the full moon that coincides with the fall equinox. Learn the history and lore of the harvest moon as you hike through the park. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar 
Patrick Callanan produced and auto-edited today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 